Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hello, Micah. Welcome from a gross, rainy day in Philadelphia, which is my favorite weather because I'm a crazy person. I know. I've been thinking about you this weekend. I feel like New York has the same misting all day with, with some storms. Sometimes I kind of want a little bit of drama with my with my rain showers. It's been low drama, just oh. completely nasty. I feel like it's pretty high drama with our rain here. It's pretty cool. Oh, good to know. Halston P. James Esquire, official mascot of the League of Movable Types podcast, is joining yeah. us. He has nothing to say while he's sitting in my lap. That is oh, my Hal. cat, if anybody doesn't know that. We love Hal. Official mascot. All right, we got to get into this episode. Yeah, I'm getting weird. (laughs) Very excited to have an episode dedicated to my experience doing packaging design, Um, a little story time episode, a great pairing for this one if you end up liking this one. Um, I did a book design story time about my time in the publishing industry, um, I think last season. So this is kind of a similar format. I'll talk about where I got to and my experience doing packaging design because there's a lot of weird industry things that you don't know about it till you're in it. But before that, Micah, you brought up something really interesting. We have a lovely founders inbox where we receive inquiries or just general emails from people that are listening to the podcast or want to get in touch. And there was someone that emailed about the membership email last week. Oh, yeah. Okay. So uh, we don't talk about it a ton as much as we probably should on the podcast, but we have a membership with the league, right? And at the moment, uh, being a member means you get like extra cool font finds and occasionally other stuff. But mostly we try to find cool fonts that you might want to know about. So just the members get to see those. If you're signed up as a member, then it's included in your weekly typographic. And so one of our members, Sigurd, hopefully pronounced that right emailed us about one of the fonts that we shared. It is a font called Fig Tree, which just launched from someone I admire a lot, Eric Kennedy, who does a lot of cool teaching on the web about design. And so he made a font, he launched it with Google. Uh, It's called Fig Tree. It's like a very workhorse kind of font, right? Mm -hmm. And Sigurd emailed in being like, why do we need Fig Tree when we already have Inter? If you don't know, Inter is also a font that I personally admire. Uh, tried to get it on the league when he first launched it, Rasmus, but he had other plans, which is cool. And it's also a very workhorse font where it looks a lot like Helvetica or San Francisco or a lot of like, I don't want to say generic, but like Swiss style grotesque font, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just thought that was interesting. Because that question comes up a lot with non-designers mostly, but sometimes with designers too. Of Why do we need another font? Yeah. I'm wondering if you have any opinions on that. Okay. First of all, a lot of people are using Inter. I'm not so familiar with Inter that I'd recognize it on the fly. But when everyone's using the same font over and over again, there's always yearning for something new. It's like there's always something new in the fashion world. You don't want to wear like the same clothes always. And I think whenever a new workhorse is made and it's an open sourced workhorse font, I think that's just even better. We're just going to have better typography on the web. I do think that, yes, while they're really similar typefaces in the sans serif world, there are definitely some nuances that 
I haven't spent too much time examining both, but I think are worth noting. For example, inter, the forms of inter are much closer to a grotesque form. They're a little bit more like really even and with, and it really reminds me of Helvetica in the way that the letter forms are drawn. Um, but when you look at fig tree, it's actually drawn in the spirit of a geometric sans serif. So a little bit closer to circular that was really popular, a little bit closer Gotham. to- Yeah, exactly. So I think like the skeletal structures are actually a little bit different. And I think there's merit to both. And gosh, if people just stopped making workhorse sans serif open source type, I'd be like a little sad if, you know, if we just like just settled on one and, and weren't trying to discover new ways. And the way anyone will make a typeface is always different. And I think brings value. That's my opinion. That's a good point. I remember there was a really good quote from Eben Sorkin in an interview a few months ago where he was in a cab and the cab driver found out he made fonts and the cab driver's like, why would you make fonts when there's so many fonts out there? And his response was like, they were listening to the radio, right? And he was like, there's a love song playing. Why that love song when there's so many other love songs? Like you wouldn't not make a new love song just because love songs exist. And I really like that perspective on it because it is the same point that you're making. Anybody is going to have their own twist just by being a unique designer on a project. And so there are subtle differences between the two and there's subtle differences between that and every other font. And while maybe some non-designers who are just reacting to the thing that you're designing and using the font in may not notice those details. I think it's plenty proven that people can feel subtle differences, even if they don't know what those differences are. Yep. Very well said. I love it. I just want to throw into why not? Yeah. Uh, Who cares? You know, like if you want, if you want to go make a new font, just because you want to make a new font, even if it's so similar to things that have happened in the past, make the font, publish the font, just do it. Why not? Applause for that. 100%. I mean, it was a really great question. I appreciate the question. And I appreciate that he like took the time to email in and and ask that. And it's fun to have that as a conversation piece. But, you know, I'm not trying to crap on the question at all. I'm just saying, I think it's like an empowering thing to be like, you know what, I want to make it and I'm going to make it and I'm going to publish it. And if people don't like it, they don't have to like it. It's cool. Yeah. And I'm going to finish this by saying you should join our membership and look it up and it's on our (laughs) website and you'll get awesome new font finds every week. We usually have a free one in there once a week, if not every week, but definitely go check it out. Stuff works really hard to find the newest, coolest fonts for you on the internet with the membership. Okay. On to our links for the week. Our first one, no surprise, Monotype acquires Berthold's renowned typeface inventory. So Berthold's always that name that I always hear in my design history book. I don't actually know that much about their library, but they've been a type foundry since, yeah, 1858, founded in Germany, most famous for Accident's Grotesque. They also have like a lot of other popular typefaces like Cosmos, Formata, Block. I don't know these, but they're famous <laughs> apparently. So Monotype has acquired these typefaces to be part of Monotype library. So what that means is that when you go on Monotype's website and want to, you know, license a font, you can find these new typefaces. Um, They're actually still sold through BertoldTypes.com and Bertold 
wet bonds. I think they're just kind of lumped in now with monotypes distribution. And the main benefit that monotype gets from this is that they can offer these typefaces in their kind of enterprise inventory monotype fonts, which is like a subscription-based service that I've been forced to use before. So... I don't know if it's possible, but I would be really curious to find out more detail and do like a nerd alert on that enterprise backend system. Because that must be how they're making so much money. Yeah. That they can like go around acquiring every foundry that exists. Yeah. And I'd be really curious to find out just the details of what that service entails and what that's like, the enterprise side, you know? Yeah. No, for sure. Definitely worth finding out more about. I wouldn't say I'm like devastated by this. To be honest, I figured that Monotype already acquired a lot of these Berthold typefaces before because they've just been around for so long. But maybe there are some people on the Berthold side of things that are astounded by this news. I don't know. You're like, this doesn't matter. However, it happened. (laughs) Um, There's like a tiny little paragraph on the history of this type boundary, which is kind of interesting. It was founded in Berlin in 1858. And in 1997, this other company named after that company acquired their inventory. That's the weird kind of font foundry history that I don't think a lot of people know that much about. A font foundry back in the 1800s will design some fonts and then somebody, they'll like expire And then somebody else will buy the rights to have that font and name their company after that font so that it sounds like they've been around since the 1800s when really it's only been 20 years or whatever, you know? Yeah, hilarious. Weird stuff. But good to know that the monster monotype is still gobbling up all the the foundries (laughs) of the world. Yep. Uh, Manifest Destiny is continuing to happen (laughs) in the type world. All right, our next article and link is actually pretty interesting and opened my eyes to something I didn't really know before. It's from ghacks.net, and it is actually a tutorial on how to block web fonts to improve your privacy. So obviously, you're the king of digital font knowledge on this podcast, but I'll break it down into like layman's term that when you use custom fonts on the web, so fonts that aren't like part of a system font or anything like that, you basically have two disadvantages because the user needs to download the font basically when they open up a website to use it, not download it as in you're downloading a zip file, but all kind of happens digitally. And so web fonts have two main disadvantages, one of them being performance, which makes sense because it's like an extra thing you have to load. But then there's this other concept of privacy that using web fonts actually is making the privacy component of a website less secure. Have you heard about this before? Well, I guess it's no shock to me. I'm not sure I've come across an article talking about it in this way. The title here is a little bit of a misnomer. It's They're talking about how Google tracks users. They're specifically talking about Google? It's possible with any font provider, web font provider. Not necessarily every web font provider, but it's possible. And it's certainly true with Google. It's basically hitting their web servers to get the fonts so they can build whatever systems they desire to track the information Mm. from that request, which includes your IP address and what browser you're using, potentially cookies, which might store any manner of information, which it's not saying that they definitely do that. 
there's no definitive way to know what they are tracking because they don't describe it explicitly. They just say, hey, by using Google Fonts, you're agreeing that we might monitor what you're using and how in some generic mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And so that's the opposite of privacy, right? You're giving up your privacy for the convenience of using their servers to host the fonts. Do you feel like this is a dire issue in the web design world? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't think it's a new issue. I think it's been around since forever. It's potentially true with literally any web service, which equals any website. In making a website, you can track all of this information by requesting the images to load on a page. Okay. Or before you even load the content of the page, you can build services before the page is rendered to say, where in the world is this IP address? Like, what's the IP address? Yeah. Where are you located? What cookies can I see by looking at this? Which there is some security to cookies. I don't want to get super nerdy, but you can define certain security rules when you save a cookie, but it's still up to the website to define those security rules. So is it a dire thing? No, but it's basically like, hey, here's another thing that maybe you didn't realize like Google has its fingers in. Yeah, and I think that's always helpful to know, be aware of, and have more transparency about, quite frankly. The solution that they're proposing here of like blocking third-party fonts kind of sucks a little bit. Yeah. Like there's no other way to prevent that, really. Like if your browser is saying, hey, don't request this information from Google, then it's not going to be able to send anything to Google because it's not trying to get anything from Google. So that works. But it also means the fonts aren't going to load unless you have them installed. So like yeah. you might be breaking how every website looks. Interesting. What's interesting too about Google, I have such <laughs> conflicting feelings about many things related to Google. There are people at Google who have very noble intentions. Google is also not that noble of a company in general, right? They're a giant conglomerate who make lots of money from lack of data privacy, right? As a mm -hmm. whole company. So what's interesting there is like they've provided this Google font service that makes it very convenient to include the fonts on your site in exchange for your data. Mm -hmm. But they're also open source fonts. So you can download those fonts and self-host them mm -hmm. and still use those fonts from your own server where you're not collecting any data if you wanted to. That's definitely a good point. All right. Speaking of fonts on the web, our next article is from the lovely Elliot J. Stotts. And it's all about his experience changing from the static versions of Oh No's Degular font to the variable version of Oh No Degular. And I love that he starts out this article by saying, I'm a variable font realist. I'm not particularly excited about adjusting a heading's weight from 900 to 901. So I love that this is not someone that's. This is why I love Elliot. Like, Elliot's, <laughs> Elliot's such a normal, reasonable human being. Like, exactly. super smart, great designer, and also like down to earth. Yeah, I love that. But he talks about using the optical size axis in a web design context. I'm curious what you felt reading this because I'm not doing, you know, I'm not in the code changing axes like that when I'm doing visual design, but I'm curious if you have also played around with the optical size axis for the web and what benefits you've seen from it and what you thought about this. This is actually an interesting thing that came up from, <laughs> I was just saying some negative things about Google, but 
in the project that I did with Thomas Jockin in writing content for the Google Fonts Knowledge site, which Elliot contributed more than anybody else to. So he knows plenty about that too. But uh, I I didn't realize at first that if there is an optical size axis built into a variable font, that the browser at this point automatically adjusts that for you. And so it's interesting that in this article, he's going in like uh, intentionally adjusting that, which is possible because it's a variable axis. But also I think I didn't know it. And I think a lot of people don't know that it's automatic a lot of times based on, I mean, it's not in every instance, but like I think Chrome at this point does this. And I think Safari too, that it automatically adjusts the optical size based on the size of the font. I didn't know that. If you don't know, optical size is basically just like really minute adjustments that the designer designs for the letter forms to make it more readable at smaller sizes and more character at larger size. Like it changes the slight curves or weights or really whatever is makes it easier for legibility at smaller sizes automatically. And Elliot mentions this in the article. I've used Dagular at both the display size and the text size. And there's actually some pretty extreme, like there's some very large differences in the way the forms are built in the display version of Dagular and the text version. And so I understand why you'd want to fine tune just how far it goes down to the text weight. That's really meant for small size scale, but then maybe you don't want it to be as functional if it's not going to be the smallest text on the page. Maybe you want a little bit more flair. And if you really want to like see some nice demonstration of this, zoom in on the title of this website. This site's type is now variable. You'll see how, you know, thin some of those connection points are in some of the high contrast areas within the type. And then if you continue down and zoom in on the text type, you'll notice it doesn't feel as drastic of contrast within those letter forms. That's just an easy way to kind of understand what the optical size he's talking about here is. Yeah, that's a good point. That's interesting. Also, interestingly enough, there are some articles in Google Fonts knowledge that are related to this. Um, I'm trying to remember. like that, That article that Thomas and I wrote literally made like a little widget that I, I don't think that they kept in the article, but maybe they like had other graphics that they made or something where you could see the visible differences. It was like, I built a little slider where yep, you could I change the size. Yeah. Like the size would change and inversely the optical sizing would change. It would stay the same size on the screen, but you could see the visible differences. Yeah. And I guess you can do that. Like you're saying, like if you zoom in on the headline and you open up the inspector on Chrome to mess with the code, you could mess with that and see it. Oh, good point. Yeah, Elliot definitely says go ahead and take a peek under the hood. One of the things that I hate about variable fonts on the web is you can see in this article, there's like CSS properties like font-optical-sizing or font-variation-settings. Mm-hmm. Some of them have clear names like font optical sizing, and a lot of them are just font variation settings with these weird four-letter uh, names that are, it's required that they're four letters in like the font format when you're making a variable font. 
there are some standards like OPSZ for optical size. You just have to know or have a dictionary yeah, somewhere. Yeah, have it memorized. Yeah. But then there's like slant, which is the equivalent of italic, right? But it's named different and you have to know that and include it in this list of weird settings for your fonts. I just think it's such a dumb interface for variable fonts on the web. No, that's fair. I mean, it's a lot of code for some things that feel like they should be a little bit more concise. All right. Moving right along. <laughs> You're like Michael Stop talking today. <laughs> too much. No, just wanna, too much. Want to make sure we get through everything. I know. Um, I know. I know. <laughs> Our next article is about the London Fire Brigade, and they get a new typeface, which is wild that the firefighters just get some typographic love over in London. And yeah. it's inspired by the vintage fire engines, which I think is really sweet, um, Victorian. And it's funny because it mentions that they're Victorian fire engines. And when I think Victorian, I often think like really decorative type, but it's actually like a really kind of straightforward sans serif. And the thing that kind of gives it its flair is that there's this drop shadow um, font. So there's one font that's regular, one font that's drop shadow. And you can use these together to kind of create a 3D drop shadow effect um, when, you know, the fire brigade uses this because it's not yet a retail font. It's just only for the fire brigade community but i think that's like a really unconventional institution to get a custom font yeah that's that is interesting huh i mean i don't know a lot about the politics of that yeah is the fire brigade i assume like a public service like it is in america i don't know yeah i I think so the 3d effect is very cool it's like modern and old-fashioned at the same time right like how cool yeah so just a nice little update on what's happening across the pond. Did you notice the company name that did the brand refresh? It's Studio Sutherland, but it's S-U-T-H-E-R-L ampersand. Yeah. Love it. I like that one. Love it. Using ampersands wherever we can as designers. <laughs> I understand. Oh, that should be a t-shirt. Using ampersands uh, wherever we can. Guys, so good yes. ideas. Let's make it happen. All right. Our last article is related to the nerd alert. I'm thinking I'm just going to do the nerd alert and then talk about this last article as like a way to kind of finish it off. It's like your little cherry on top of the dessert that is the nerd alert. Very exciting. All right, guys. Hack design story time. So I basically have written down notes of how I got into packaging design because I think that it's like an industry within an industry. And I feel like it's really confusing how people can end up there without knowing someone or being brought into the packaging design industry really early in your career. And I think I was like three or four years into my career until I got into it. So I'll talk about how that happened. And then some insider knowledge on what it's like designing packaging, things that surprised me about my experience, things that taught me a little bit about the greater world we live in, quite honestly. And then we're going to end with some package design news that has recently come out regarding the government's hand in what our packaging design could be looking like in the United States of America. So with that, I'll get started. My earliest foray into packaging design was when I was a freelancer. I got a gig off of a Slack group I was part of. I think it was called Ladies Get Paid. And there was just like a random jobs posting channel. And it was someone saying like, we need someone to do beer can packaging. We're like a new startup. So I got in touch with them and they were called Elix. 
E-L-I-Q-S. And their whole proposition as a startup was to design beer and wine cans for people's events and celebrations. I came from the event design industry, so I had some familiarity with custom designs for event collateral, not necessarily beer or wine yet, but I dove into this whole world doing, I think, two to three beer cans a week for eight weeks or something. And I thought that was a really good entry into the packaging design world for me because it was also not really the packaging design world. There were some times when I designed things for cans that didn't actually get made. But I do think in general, it taught me the importance of a front of pack experience. Like, what does it look like to look at something on the shelf? And what does that front panel look like? And I think every beer can has it, even though it's a cylindrical object. And it also like kind of allowed me to work within a lot of different design styles, whether some of them are conceptual completely or actually gotten made. And it was like a lot of quick turnaround, which I later found out is like the opposite of how the packaging design world worked. But I didn't learn anything about any legal or practical limitations. I learned a lot more about the legal limitations of packaging later down the road. And I didn't learn anything about accessibility in packaging design, how some things actually need to be really legible if it's about a legal thing, like the net weight of a product. But I was kind of living in this fantasy land, and I do think it ultimately helped my entry into the quote-unquote real packaging design world. So I got reached out to freelance at JKR back in fall of 2020. So I had a bunch of these iterations of can designs in my book. And the first project I actually worked on as a freelancer there was, I don't think I've ever talked about this. It never got made. I'm still going to be pretty vague about it. But it was going to be a new to world craft cocktail brand. It was like when- New to world? Meaning like just new? Yeah, that's again, (laughs) weird industry speak. When something's like brand, brand new, it's not a variant off of an existing brand. It's new to world. And so it's going to be this new to world craft cocktail brand, and it was going to be expensive. $5 a can, maybe? Is that expensive? Well, it's expensive when you think about someone buying a six pack of something. If you're buying a six pack, that's like $30. Occasionally, I'll buy a cocktail in a can. And at this point, they're like $8 or $9 a can. Yeah, I think inflation's also... It's like 25 bucks for a six pack. Yeah, I think that's also inflation just dictating that but back in 2020 yeah okay. <laughs> this is an Fair expensive enough. premise and so i basically doing a lot of what i later learned were called pack seps which is like a crazy only in the packaging world thing where it's basically just different design explorations and mocked up on a mock-up of a can so it's not necessarily a flat design it's your design in a mock-up it's really what a pack set means. And it doesn't necessarily have to have all the details correct, but it has to have like a really distinct look and feel where you could kind of imagine where things would go from there. And so that was my first project at JKR. And then when I signed on for full time, I started working at a lot of longer term projects and was often working on brands that were living under much larger corporations. So hmm. most packaging I ever did was under the Kraft Heinz Corporation, just Kraft. They own so much of the market. I did not even realize that was one company. Oh, yeah. I assumed it was Kraft and Heinz. And they own everything. I mean, they own Kraft Mac and Cheese and they own Velveeta. Like all these companies that you think are actually competitors of each other too. Kraft has just such a crazy stronghold on them. So a lot of the projects never necessarily came to completion or haven't been published yet except my Velveeta project. So I can kind of use that as the easiest thing I can talk about. 
But basically, Velveeta, as a lot of people know that have listened to me talk about it, was a year-long project. That was itself brand identity and packaging design. So it's like a lot of components. But it basically took a year from start to finish to get the packaging design approved by this client. And I just learned that packaging design is a really slow process. You have a lot of cooks in the kitchen and you just have to accept it and do your best with it. So you have a creative direction of the team that you're on as a designer. But then you also have brand managers, which are people working on the client side of things that their babies are these brands. They know incredible amount of knowledge about the history of Velveeta, who eats Velveeta, who they want to eat Velveeta, where they want Velveeta to be marketed. So they have a lot of opinions on how to convey the right thing. And then at the end of the day, before anything actually gets produced, there's the production people. So people that are printing this that are saying, yes, these colors work. No, you can't do this color. And then there's the legal team that says, we need to have our net weight be at least this size. And we need these legal facts to be high contrasting. Even if it fucks with your design, this is what we advise. So you just have a lot of people in there, more so than most other projects. And I think especially with big companies like Kraft, they want to kind of have control of every little thing they possibly can, rather than if it was like a small bespoke coffee bean company in Brooklyn or something. So with that, you learn a lot about designing for demographic and making sure like your typography, your photography, your color scheme matches the price of a good. So there were often concerns when we were designing certain projects. Let's say something by Kraft Heinz that you find in the frozen food aisle or something like Velveeta, you can't make it look too expensive with the design. You can't be too precious about anything. You can't choose a color palette that feels too inaccessible. Everything that is being put into a design, whether that's someone that designed a $50 liquor packaging and now has to design a $4 mac and cheese box, it doesn't really matter where your perspective is as a designer. Obviously, you're trying to make the best decision for the package, but ultimately a cheap and cheerful brand has to look cheap and cheerful. You can't have things that make it look more luxurious because you think that that would be amazing if Velveeta could look like a $10 product. A lot of your design is influenced by what this product costs and what you want that perception to be. So that is the overview of, I feel like, some of the things I took out of the packaging process. I still do some packaging at Thought Matter, not for Kraft Heinz Company, but there were months when I was working on packaging for one brand And that's all I was doing for months. And I think if you talk to people that left the packaging world, they can also agree with that. There are just some brands that these brand managers think are so precious and need to look over every single little decision. And then there's always like the fighting between, is this the creative vision or is this what the brand managers think that the people want? And there's a lot of focus groups that go into this. And I've sat through those focus groups and it's incredibly painful to hear people think that a design you spent hours on is like... I just don't like it. I don't like it at all. And that's usually their critiques of it. It's like without too much design feedback. Oh. So I love the packaging design world. I think it's fascinating. I still love it. And I obviously have a very specific experience in it. But I think there's a lot that goes. It's not as glamorous as I think I thought it was going to be in the end. How do you accept that many cooks in the kitchen? That was honestly the toughest part for me about packaging design. It goes back to every design principle that we can talk about is make your design bulletproof. 
have as strong of a reasoning as you can think of and someone might try to crack into it and they might just like literally tell you, no, I don't like that shade of blue. And eventually you might have to listen to them, but to at least have reasoning behind every little decision and make sure the reasoning works for you for the creative vision, but then also works for you for accessibility. Because that was one of the things that there was a lot of pushback on often is like, even if one little thing could potentially get in the way of legibility for type, it often was totally like, just had to go. Someone from the legal team was like, no, we need everything to be as legible as possible. And so you really learn the balance between accessibility and aesthetic, I think, as well. I guess now that you, I mean, you kind of accidentally got into the whole thing, but now that you have had a bunch of experience in it, other than randomly happening upon it in a Slack group that you maybe are not, what advice would you have for somebody who is really interested in that and wants to get into it? So I would say to buy a beer can mock-up Photoshop template or buy a template for a mock-up of a piece of packaging and go from there. A lot of the packaging I was doing before I was actually working for brands that their main product was packaged goods, like it was all a little bit fictional and nothing was necessarily working within this legal constrained world, but it like definitely was, I was able to show off type skills, you're able to show off illustration skills, you're able to show off composition skills. And that's whether or not that's a real project, I would just start with fictional stuff as I always say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's good advice to be reminded of though. Yeah. Make the project that you wish that you were on, make it. Even if it's fake, put it in your portfolio and then people can see what you could do with that. Yeah. Like, who's your favorite band? What if you made a series of beer cans for that band? There you go. There's a prompt. Make some cocktails for the League of Movable Type Fonts. Oh, my gosh. I would die. What flavor would Fanwood be? Oh, my God. Old fashioned. 100%. Fanwood? No, I feel like Fanwood's more like gin and tonic. Okay. I can see it as both. I could see it as both. What what would Sniglet be? Sniglet would be like a peaches margarita. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like that. That's great, actually. That's great. <laughs> so I'll just say our last article that we included in the links is a really interesting one that we can't get into all of it right now. But Biden came out with this strategy recently or his administration to help America get healthier. There's stuff about food insecurity in there. There's stuff about programs for lunches at schools. But there was a big amount of it that was about giving people nutritional information in a better way and how kind of the world of marketing and design collides with the systemic health issues of America. And this article from the Die Line mentioned that the document proposes to bring nutrition information to the front of the pack, the FOP in industry lingo, the FOP, <laughs> as opposed to the back of pack, the BOP. The Dialine article talks about what this could potentially mean, whether that's seeing packaging in different shapes, whether that's seeing bigger packaging to have more room for more attention-grabbing graphics on the front of pack and nutritional facts. I'm very curious how design is going to be negotiated in this world. This strategy actually does get rolled out. It'd be several more years. But really interesting to kind of think about that tension between like governmental health systems and packaging design. I mean, you had a lot of thoughts about this when we were first talking about this before the podcast. Yeah. I'm just curious to hear your opinions. 
I'd have to say that there are certain things that are already in place that require nutritional facts to be on the front of packaging. There's these things called FUFs or facts up front that we had to use a lot. (laughs) I know, the funny acronyms that we had to use a lot when I was working on craft brands, but not all brands. And they're the little bugs. You'll like recognize them if you have, I don't know, just a really common pantry staple in the house, like cereal box or goldfish or something. And they're little, just little graphic devices that say calories, sugars, fat, whatever that could potentially deter someone from buying something. But there's already like some systems in place. I'm curious if this whole idea of moving a nutritional panel to the front of pack means moving that really ugly black and white panel we see on all of our products right now to the front of pack or a more simplified version of it. And I think already when I was working in packaging design, I thought there was a lot that was compromised in order for accessibility and for legal reasons. And it's just, are we going to walk into a grocery store and look at a bunch of nutrition fact panels in a pantry aisle? I don't know if that's the best solution. I get why you feel that way. And then also from the opposite angle of that, is that a bad thing to walk? Most of the time now we walk in and are influenced by extreme marketing tactics to purchase what we purchase but it's food it's nutrition is that how it should be that we should be so influenced by marketing psychology to purchase these things or is it maybe a good thing that it wouldn't be as easy to manipulate because there wouldn't be as much room i yeah i like wonder if it will just be like wallpaper though eventually And that's if I was saying, like, you're really bringing this ugly black and white nutrition facts panel to the front. I think they mentioned in this article the traffic light schemes that could be used for this. And it's a movement. They connect to the published article about it, traffic light labeling, where they use colors as signifiers for what's high in fat or high in sugar. And if it's something like that, that can be like a quick, easy read, that literally doesn't mean people have to read letters and numbers, which I think people don't really do. I think that maybe is where things could start seeing a more interesting shift in immediate buying power. Yeah, I could see that. I think I didn't quite understand that it could be that when we were first talking about this. That Same. I thought it would be like food ratings in restaurants where there's mm-hmm. like a sign on the window that if it's poor quality and poor hygiene inside, you get a D or a C or something. And then you see that as you're walking up and you're like, ah, I don't want to eat there. Yeah. And that is kind of a good thing for health to look at the cereal. Like, I love like Reese's cereal, right? I don't eat a lot, but I love them. And like that would probably get a D in health. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to like suddenly have to face that as I'm picking up the box might make some amount of people question getting that on a regular basis. And that's kind of a good thing. Yeah. But I didn't really realize that it could maybe be like, hey, fat is red. But sugars are only yellow. And taking that like black and white nutrition into a color-coded nutrition table. I don't think I realized that. That's potentially true. Potentially what could happen. Again, all this would be like years down the line. But I think to finish this off, like you make such a good point about a lot of this packaging design is really just marketing. And it's not really looking out for people's nutrition. And there is like crazy statistics about the amount of money that gets spent on marketing products that are really bad for you. And then like systemically, I think we read that marketing was being targeted towards black and Hispanic children specifically. The marketing for food products is like 14 billion. 
and that from some study, 80% of that was for fast foods or cereals or sugary things or candies that were specifically marketed towards black and Hispanic audiences. Yeah. So that's pretty wild. And I think that can make someone think as they're designing the next packaging for so-and-so what that could mean in a bigger, broader scale of things. I've got one last question. You might not know the answer. Why is the typography on all of the nutrition fact tables so jacked up? They're so Every single up. one is jacked up in a different way. No, they're like, so terrible. They don't even have like a standard width and height and weight for the words nutrition <sighs> facts. Like sometimes it's squashed, sometimes it's stretched. Sometimes it's not stretched, but it is very vertical. Sometimes so much squashing and stretching that happens on those things. It's bonkers. How is it not regulated? I think that's the last thing that gets done in production, usually. That's just the last thing. And so there's sometimes when printing companies will take the liberties to do things and get things approved by legal teams and not necessarily go through the channels of the original designer. But yeah, I can tell you nutrition fact panels at FPs are like the least loved part of a package. <laughs> I don't actually think I've ever seen any NFP that was loved. Like, why are there no like millennial cereal companies that are trying to like make cereal cool and healthy? Why don't they like make it a good design? Are they not allowed? When, next time I see one, if I see one ever, I'm going to report it on this podcast. Yeah, good. That's a good question. Because there's obviously some standardization to it. There's big black bars in regular places. Yeah. I don't know why, but they're there. No, it's a confusing world. Fascinating. All right. Well, that wraps up our fun little dive into the packaging design world. Next week, things are coming to you a little bit differently. Our episode, I think I'm not going to reveal what next week's episode is, but our episode oh. will be coming out. On Wednesday instead of Friday, so you're lucky enough to have an early release on Wednesday the 12th. And there's going to be some really special guests and some really special content. So definitely don't miss out. Kind of a new thing that we're going to try and it's going to be fun. Yeah. Can't not wait. Tease, tease, tease. Do, 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 do. All right. Thanks, Olivia. You are do, 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 do. the goat. Thank you. Oh, wait, yeah, you sing us out. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>